Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come in. Come, come in. And know you are welcome here to our weekly sequestration in the Nook. Yes, this is the Nook. And yes, I am Lawrence Santoro, purveyor of all things mirthful, joyous, and delightfully awful here on Tales to Terrify. So, unfestoon yourselves and snuggle with the warmth, with your best chum. Grab a beverage first, of course, warm or chilled, and dip a bowl of crunchy, salty, sweet snack, and get ready, for we have a grand show tonight. Two, count them two shortish tales of youth and childhood, to be read to us on this first day of March, the month of lambs and lions. But first, and of course, there must be a first before the stories, a first to settle us in, yes? Yes. First, it is Stoker time once again. The Horror Writers Association, the venerable HWA, has announced the finalists for this year's Bram Stoker Awards for superior achievement in, well... In many things, novel, first novel, long fiction, screenplay, poetry, and, germane to us gatherers in the nook, superior achievement in short fiction. This year's crop is a rich and a heady one. Several old chums are shortlisted. Bruce Boston, whom most of you who are regular listeners to these efforts know principally as a poet of rare and tasty gifts, is one for his tale— Surrounded by the mutant rainforest. Yum. 
Weston Oaks is another. We've heard his stories, The Blue Healer, which we cast back in April of our first year, and Big Rock Candy Mountain, heard in November. Wes is up for a stoker this year for Revelation. Add to those Joe McKinney for Bury My Heart at Marvin Gardens, Lucy Snyder for Magdala Amygdala, and John Palisano for Available Light. I look forward. How about you? Yes? Yes. We have secured the reading rights to all five tales, and over the next few weeks, Cher and I will have them read. We'll schedule them, most likely in two marathon shows, cast forth just prior to Stoker time in New Orleans. That will be on June 15th, 2013. So, there you are. And second, I have to remind you of the usual things. Buy the book. Befriend us on Facebook. Engage each other in chat and discussion. Make a contribution by going to the Tales to Terrify website and clicking on the appropriate button and to, uh, well, buy the book. Did I mention that? Yes. <laughs> yes, of course I did. Other than that, I have nothing more to say before saying the magic word, fiction. Our first tale tonight is by Nicole Cushing. Nicole is an author of dark, weird fiction. The Black Dog and Leventhal anthology Werewolves and Shapeshifters, Encounters with the Beast Within, includes Ms. Cushing's short fiction, which stands quite comfortably in that volume alongside stories by Neil Gaiman, George R. R. Martin, Charlene Harris, and Chuck Pohaniak. Her work also appears in the Cemetery Dance anthology In Layman's Terms, Several of her stories have been or will be presented on podcasts, such as Pseudopod and Cast Macabre and, well, Tales to Terrify. In March of 2013, Dark Fuse will publish Nicole's first novella, Children of No One, in both signed limited hardcover and ebook editions. She invites correspondents via Facebook, Twitter, or... If one must be old-fashioned about it, she says, email her at NicoleCushingWriter at gmail.com. That's N-I-C-O-L-E-C-U-S-H-I-N-G-W-R-I-T-E-R, all one word, at gmail.com. So, here, for your delectation, is Nicole Cushing's All I Really Need to Know. I learned in piggy class. One, piggy class. We'd made the paper mache piggy masks in art class, all the way back in middle school. It had been career day, and we'd just taken a vocational aptitude test. My cousin Cheyenne's results had told her that she'd make a good hen. David, my older brother, who'd taken a similar test five years before me, had been told he'd make a good bull. The butcher who prepared his body for market sent a kind note informing us that he'd proven a fine specimen and had not so much as flinched before entering the abattoir. 
The treasure of our family, though, the one who made us all proud, was my eldest brother, Donnie. At 15 years my senior, he always treated me more like a niece than a sister. His aptitude test said he'd make a good farmhand. And so off he went one day, to a farm up around Cherry Hill. He consoled us by pointing out that they mostly grew feed corn and soybeans up there, with a few goats thrown in as a hobby. So the chances of him being put in the awkward position of farming a sibling were remote. My aptitude test said I'd make a good piggy. As soon as I'd received the results, the enforcer escorted me out of the principal's office to join the other piggies in Miss Tinsman's art class. That's when we made our masks. It didn't make any sense to me at the time that Miss Cafferty, our principal, confiscated them before we could try them on. Not yet, my little piglets. Wallow in summertime before you don your masks, she'd said. That didn't make any sense at all. Not until the first day at LaGrange High School, when I opened my assigned locker and discovered the piggy mask I'd made three months before dangling from a coat hook awaiting me. A mimeographed sheet read, Wear this now, be this now. If you are not piggy enough, you will be expelled. I'd never known anyone in school who'd been expelled, but one heard stories over the years. Rumor had it that the school system liked to dissect the expelled to find out just what had gone wrong. Rumor had it they started the procedure with you alive. I can't imagine why, unless one's response to the dissection was part of the data collected. The school system did so love testing. To be expelled meant you had failed to fulfill your niche in life a fate most people in town considered worse than death due to the dishonor it inflicted on the entire family. If I were ever to join the ranks of the expelled, I would bring great shame to my mom and dad. So I put on the piggy mask and went to visit my new homeroom teacher, and, it turned out, my new everything-else teacher, Ms. Landris. She'd been in the employ of the school system for decades and had all the mechanical add-ons to prove it, Gears in her eyes, all the better to see us with. Gears in her heart, all the better to hate us with. When I tell people about it now, I'm told I shouldn't be surprised I got expelled. Maybe it all started on September 1st, the day of our first class inspection, right after lunch in a fire drill. The first day I saw Miss Landris's scaramouche mask. The day I pissed her off by calling it a bird mask. I'm not a filthy animal like you, swine. Now repeat after me. Scaramouche, she'd snarled, glaring down at me with those gear eyes of hers. Scaramouche, I'd stammered, my voice muffled under the papier-mâché piggy mask. Close enough, you worthless piggy, she'd said, just before she hawked an oily loogie onto my new school dress. The rest of the piggy class broke out in a chorus of condescending snorts and squeals. After that, I did everything Miss Landris said and limited my communication with the other kids to a stray whisper every other day or so. Stop looking at me, I'd croak. I'd learned my lesson, I thought. I wasn't about to call her scaramouche mask a bird mask anymore. I would just do my best to be a good piggy and blend in. On inspection days in particular, that was the best strategy. It was November 1st when it happened, 
the first of the month, just a couple of weeks shy of fall break. Miss Landris hissed directions for us to line up for inspection. Boy, girl, boy, girl, same as always this day of the month, at high noon. Each of us stood in queue, struggling to project the aura of the quintessential papier-mâché piggy. Ms. Landris's gear-wheel eyes churned with deliberate machination on such days. They made slow, safe tumbler sounds. Click, 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 click. Each click, an indication of her sensation, her perception, her judgment of us. Each click rendered the true status of our souls harder and harder to hide. Scare a you, scare a me, scare a moosh. The braver, less browbeaten piggies whispered to each other at the bus stop that morning. Although well on their way to pigginess, I took solace in thinking that they must have had enough human kids still in them to find a way to diffuse their dread with a lame joke. After all, piggies don't whistle past the graveyard. If we passed inspection, Ms. Landris would shriek that we were, in her singular but sufficient opinion, Piggy! Piggy! Ms. Landris hollered with approval as she stared into the soul of Natalie Simmons. Then Natalie smiled and snorted and skipped off to her seat. Piggy! Ms. Landris yipped as she took a quick glance at Aiden Addison, a piggy so brimming with pigginess that inspection itself seemed an unnecessary formality. He squealed long and longingly, crawling back to his seat. Then she got to me. That mean old hag placed one gnarled arthritic finger under my chin and brought my reluctant eyes to hers. I looked up, past the scaramouche mask into her eye gears. Gears that started to go faster. Gears that seemed able to ground up my soul. Not piggy enough! She'd wailed, reaching her claws into the holes of my mask and nearly scratching my eyeballs with her ragged, untrimmed nails in the process. Her gears clicked away faster still, like a roller coaster approaching the plunge. Click, 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 click. No, no, not piggy enough. Click, click. No, no, not piggy enough, she roared. She yanked for all she was worth, unmasking me. For a few moments, I just stood there, adjusting to the odd, unwelcome kiss of air against my cheeks. Just stood there, not understanding the implications of the monthly judgment. Expelled! Expelled! Ms. Landris screeched, her eyes clicking with manic judgment. She pushed a red button on her desk. My face flushed. My face ached. My face must have expressed, at that moment, all the aggregate horrors encountered during my days in piggy class. I don't know how long I stood there, stunned still, until I heard the first slap of the enforcer's boot against the linoleum floor. That reminded me of all the agonies, both of the flesh and of the soul, awaiting me. I ran. Ran out of the high school, Pulse pumping, arms pumping, my face ablaze with the wince-worthy pain induced by air rushing onto it, air hitting raw nerve. The extra weight I'd put on since September jiggled around my midsection. I ran past the ball field, past the tree line, and splashed into the shallow creek nearby. I'd heard somewhere on TV that if you did that, it would make it hard for someone to track you, that your scent would disappear. 
and disappear is exactly what I wanted to do. I ran along the soft creek bottom, splashing for a bit, nervous that what the enforcer's hounds couldn't smell, the enforcers themselves could plainly hear. I decided after a bit of running that I'd best make it to land. There was a cemetery nearby, and then some woods past that. Where I'd go after that, I did not know. I made a leap out of the creek onto the wading bank and slipped. My new girth pulled me backward, and I fell into the water. The splash of water onto my face stung like a hundred bee stings. I yelped. My fall kicked up a vomit of sediment from the sandy creek bottom, and minnows scattered in its wake. As the water stilled, I caught a rippling reflection of myself. My face was scarred and deformed, with nerves and muscles visible and throbbing, under my eyes and cheeks. But even with that mess, I could see a few suggestions of pigginess. My nose had become more upturned than it ever had been before, and it had grown in length about half an inch. I could see where it began to bear a resemblance to a snout. Likewise, my ears possessed a suggestion of pointedness. I'd gotten a double chin. But it struck me that there was something about my transformation that had gone awry. That Ms. Landris had been right, if not in her pedagogy, then in her perception, that I was not piggy enough. It was as though the mask had suggested the change to my facial features, but my face, by some vestigial sense of fixed identity, had compromised, had talked back to the mask, had said, this far, no further. Looking down at my reflection, I felt the whole world wobble. The aptitude test had said I'd make a good piggy, but there I sat, looking into a reflection that at best looked like some sort of piggy abortion. I began sobbing. I'd failed. I'd been expelled. This meant disgrace for my family. Mom had already told me that if I washed out and didn't fulfill my potential, I shouldn't bother coming back home. She said that if I did come home, she'd have no choice but to turn me in. If I could have found a way to drown myself right there, in the foot or so of creek, I would have. Instead, I crawled up the creek bank and ran, past the cemetery, past the woods, darting behind one house and another to catch my breath and evade detection. It was this way, sleeping in cornfields and stealing melons, that I survived as I found my way out of town, to the city. 2. Freak Catcher's Modeling School When you're young, expelled, and of ambiguous species, you end up surviving in some of the worst possible ways. You are, after all, a fugitive. Even worse, you're naive and willing to glom onto any facsimile of family. You're willing to set aside gut feelings about people you'd ordinarily see as shady, because you are, after all, a freak. You buy into society's hype about the expelled. You learn to stop trusting yourself. You trust cliches instead. Beggars can't be choosers. Any poured in a storm. So it was that I ended up with Freak Catcher. He fancied himself an underground artist. He taunted the authorities by taking grainy photographs of the expelled and posting them on telephone poles in the arts district. 
Freak Catcher and his wife, Freak Watcher, they called her, discovered me, scrounging through trash outside a trendy artist's restaurant. They offered me a free meal and a place to stay the night if I'd participate in a photo session. By then, fall had turned to winter. The temperature had plunged to 10 degrees, and the thin, calf-length sweater I'd recycled from the trash wasn't cutting it. Meals recycled from the trash weren't cutting it either. Still, the idea of trusting Freak Catcher to photograph me and still somehow keep my location a secret from the authorities gave me pause. After all, Freak Catcher wasn't a freak. That is, no matter how much of an affinity he had for the expelled, he wasn't one. He liked to tell us, over and over, that his aptitude test told him that he was to be an artist, but I doubted that the aptitude test told anyone to be an artist— Aptitude tests just weren't like that. Besides, he didn't exactly dress the way I expected an artist to dress. He wore a black leather jacket over top of a grease-stained NASCAR t-shirt. He bragged on having been a sailor once, and he wore his salt-and-pepper hair in a mop top. He said he could be my new dad, and that Freak Watcher could be my new mom. Together, they'd take pictures of me. I stood there paralyzed for a moment. Trust him, he won't turn you in, a voice said from behind me. He never snitched on me or Huck. The voice sounded young and deep, exuding confidence. Confidence was a commodity in short supply in my life, so I turned to meet it. The boy was maybe a year or two older than me. He had a long face with big teeth, prominent nostrils, and bulging eyes bulging eyes that just kept looking down on me from a height of about six foot four. Eyes that wouldn't let go. At that moment, I felt relieved that poverty had taken off the weight I'd gained during my brief time in high school. From the moment he opened his mouth, I liked this horse abortion boy, even if his face itself didn't exactly conform to universal standards of handsomeness. I liked that he noticed me. He rescues us, the tall horse boy said. A much shorter dude with a bushy blood-red mohawk and sagging jowls emerged from behind the horse boy and made a coughing, crowing sound that I thought might have been a laugh. He recycles us, the rooster boy said. Huck the rooster boy, Champ the horse boy, and me only spent three months with Mama Freak Watcher and Daddy Freak Catcher before they kicked us out. I know it sounds mean, but I don't think they meant it that way. I think they just got bored with us. I think that the entire city got bored with us. We were overexposed. We weren't even newsworthy anymore. Freak Catcher had showed us the clippings back when we'd been the talk of the town. Even an underground artist had to introduce enough novelty to keep the audience interested. A month or two after he evicted me, I noticed that Freak Catcher had moved on to using transvestite hookers in his photography. Champ had to explain to me what a transvestite hooker was. We didn't have those in the country. Once again, Freak Catcher's art was the stuff of headlines. One day, when I glanced up a telephone pole and saw Freak Catcher's grainy rendering of a transvestite's meaty man foot in a high-heeled shoe, I had to stop and wonder— had the transvestite's aptitude test told her she'd be a transvestite? 
Anyway, three months wasn't a lot, but it was enough time for me to learn the ropes of life in the city. Champ and Huck seemed to know what to do when we got kicked out. They'd heard of an acting troupe that sometimes hired creatures like us to portray burn victims, ghouls, and other monstrosities. The pay wasn't much, of course, but between the three of us, we could afford a shabby one-bedroom apartment within walking distance to the theater. We had just enough left over to buy the cheapest store-brand bread and eggs at the market. 3. Industrial Arts. Today. We've lived this way for about three years now. During that time, I've played every variety of disfigured monster the theater has to offer. I've had every combination of wild, half-bestial sex with Champ, Huck, and any other expelled creature I've run into. I think the only reason I've never gotten pregnant is that I like to party pretty hard. Okay, extremely hard. I've tried every flavor of liquor, in copious amounts each and every night, and have sampled enough pills to start a pharmacy. Whenever I pop one into my mouth, I tell myself that I'm taking the cure for my freakishness, and I pretend, for half a second, that the pills undo the work of that high school mask. Sometimes, if I take the right combination, I get high enough that they seem, for a few minutes, to do just that. I try not to show my face during broad daylight, and that's why theater, the ultimate second-shift job, works for me. Yeah, I know, it's not the greatest life in the world, but I'm pretty sure that it's better than live dissection. I mean, I do want more than this hand-to-mouth existence. I think I want Champ's baby someday. But that will mean changes. I'll need to stop drinking and pill-popping. We'll need more than bread and eggs to feed a child. Champ knows all of this. He wants to ditch Huck and get a place for the two of us, but it's awfully expensive and dangerous for two expelled folks like ourselves. But I'm convinced that, for once, we need to drop all pretense of our life as artists and redouble our efforts to find the niche we never did in high school. Maybe we could even find more than just a niche. Maybe we could find redemption. Champ agrees with this wholeheartedly. Today, he brought home a brochure for a local industrial arts college. No more struggling, babe, he said. Promises abounded amidst the brochure's glossy pages. New careers, new vistas. One could be a piston, a spark plug, crankshaft, or rod. One could even aspire to be an entire wheel onto oneself, someday. Perhaps a gear or whole collection of gears. Our education will require multiple surgeries, the transformation of some aspects of our bodies into a liquid state, and the pouring of those parts into molds. There will be sacrifice, but then again, no worthwhile calling is without it. I just have to keep in mind the end result, a future in which Champ and I would have parts to play in the real world, a future for just Champ and I, no more Huck, with our shiny gears intermeshed with those of our offspring. Usefulness and prosperity for all three of us. The industrial arts school seems quite promising. The possibilities are limited only by our scores on the entrance aptitude test. The end.
Here from one of her websites are a few fun facts about Nicole. Nicole frequently writes while listening to the music of Philip Glass, Shostakovich, or Alfred Schnittke, all of which. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. She creates a certain cognitive dissonance. She's actually a redneck woman at heart, she tells us. Nicole cites Thomas Ligotti, Gary Brownbeck, and Philip K. Dick as some of her influences. And she can be found on Facebook and Twitter and tapping the microphone and repeatedly asking, is this thing on? Well, thank you, Nicole. I look forward to more from you. And thank you, Renee Shambliss, for reading Piggy Class to us. It's a beautiful job. Renee is a writer, audiobook narrator, and podcaster. Her highly rated podcast novel, Dreaming of Deliverance, led to a career as a professional voiceover artist, she lives in Northern California with her husband and two children. These days, she says, she balances being a wife and mother with writing new books and recording fiction, her own, and that written by others. For more about Miss Shambliss's life and work, stop by Renee's website, which you'll find on the Tales to Terrify homepage. I was in theater for much of my life, mostly as a director— Sometimes as an actor when I couldn't avoid it or when I needed the money. Funny thing about masks, about all the sorts of masks an actor can wear, which include costume, voice, walk, body types. You put on the trappings, the outer garments, the ways and fragments of another person, and you look at yourself, and lo, if you let yourself, you can become that person. That other creature can crawl into you and into your guts and tingle your brain. It's an amazing thing that can happen, if you let it. Look up François Delsart sometime. See what he has to say about semblance becoming substance. Once, well, I'll tell you more about that once upon a time moment another time. Just ask me about Henry Antrobus. Okay? Okay. 
Our second bit of fictive musing tonight comes from Ray Banks. Ray says that he shares his birthday with Chuck Barris and Curtis Mayfield. And doesn't that idea of sharing a birthday with several people raise something of a disturbing image? Hmm? Yeah. He also allows that he screeched into the world on the same day that Roberto Rossellini said ciao to this mortal coil. Anyway, here, through the kindness of Ray, is the kindness of strangers. There are few things as obnoxiously loud as a gymnasium full of children. It's a strange, unearthly din, a combination of roar and shriek, punctuated with high-pitched giggles, sudden shouts and the ongoing impatient swinging and shuffling of feet. Even when they're just chattering amongst themselves, a couple of hundred kids will generate enough noise to drown out a 747, and it's not something you can comfortably endure without blowing an eardrum first. I mean... I suppose if you've taught the buggers on a daily basis, you'd get used to it. But for a visitor, even one as regular as I was, it could be excruciating. So when Miss Morgan asked me something, I had to ask her to repeat it. She smiled. You asked if they were ready? Ah! I matched her smile and raised her a couple of teeth. Yes. She nodded towards the mass of children off to my right, all sat on benches. They're arranged by year in alphabetical order. Is that okay? I gave her the thumbs up. Brilliant. You need anything else? Sorry? Do you need anything else? No, I don't think so. Who's my sheepdog? Miss Morgan smiled again. When her face was in repose, she could have passed for a porcelain doll, and when she smiled, she looked younger than many of the pupils in her year 10 class. She wore grey and brown, tried to hide her bony little body in the folds of her clothes, but she had strong teeth and that smile meant she was comfortable with me, which was a step in the right direction. Mr. Grant, she said, and pointed at a wide-shouldered, heavy-stomached man with a full beard. Mr. Grant wore a tracksuit that made him look like a refugee from the Krypton Factor, circa 1986. He was my sheepdog, charged with arranging the children as well as pushing them through at a fair clip. From the look on his face, he knew what kind of hellish chore it was going to be, and he'd obviously already decided that I was the one to blame. He's a PE teacher, isn't he? Miss Morgan's smile became a grin, and she arched an eyebrow. Whatever gave you that idea? He looks like Bullet Baxter. She laughed. I waved a hand at Mr Grant, and he snapped into action. He arranged the year sevens into a line. The first kid, a tubby boy with a mop of blonde hair and a cut lip, named Michael Adler, was sent forward. He pulled himself up onto the seat in front of me and gave his best photo smile. Just look at the camera there, Michael. I pointed at the webcam. When he looked at my finger, I clicked the mouse, took the picture, and then signalled for the next child. Miss Morgan sent Michael on his way. A little pigtailed girl named Andrea Barker dropped into the seat. She gave me a gummy, wet smile, and I clicked the mouse again. That was my job. When I told people I took pictures of children for a living, they normally did a bit of a double-take, and then looked around the room until I told them that Hey, it really wasn't as creepy as it sounded. Sometimes I didn't tell them for a while, though, just to torture them. After all, people's minds do tend to go to the darkest places, 
and sometimes I wanted to see them think of me like that, just to see what it looked like, before I explained myself and that look of mild alarm was replaced by one of mild guilt. The truth of the matter was that I worked for a large multinational corporation that specialised in access control and cashless payment systems, which is about as rock and roll as it sounds. In layman's terms, if you've ever had to use a plastic card on an electronic reader to pay for something, enter a building, or even prove you were who you said you were, the chances are both card and reader came from us. Right then, the biggest market was education. Some universities and colleges, but mostly schools, because if there was one thing parents cared about, it was their child's attendance. And if there was something else they cared about, it was their child's diet. So what the large multinational corporation did was make a series of deals with local authorities and schools up and down the country. We supplied each child with his or her own triple-function plastic card. The children used the embedded chip to enter the school and log their attendance. There was also a mag stripe on the card which could be loaded with money by the parent to spend on school dinners. The beauty of this was that the parent could specify the kind of food their child was allowed to purchase, so no more cats for chunky Michael Acker. Finally, the card itself was printed with the child's vital information and his or her photograph. And that was where I come in. Now, you might not have thought there was much work involved in something like that, but when each kid needed a new photo each year, and there was a good two, three thousand of them in one school alone, then that was quite the to-do list. Throw in the fact that I was covering pretty much every school in the northeast, from Berwick down to the arse end of Teesside, with occasional jaunts to the no-man's land of Cumbria, where men were men, and so were the women, and you could be forgiven for thinking that there just weren't enough hours in the day. Tell you, sometimes it certainly felt that way. But then, I took a great deal of pride in my work, and if there was ever a photo that didn't immediately resemble the child in front of me, I'd take it again. Sometimes, I might have even taken an extra moment to make sure my subject looked their best, but only in those rare cases when the boy or girl in questions looked as if they'd rather chew off their own fingers than have their photo taken. The way I saw it, the way I remembered it from my own school days, is that those kids were going to have a battered, frightened year ahead of them anyway, so why remind them of their physical faults every time they swipe for a Mars bar? Case in point, last year, over at Benton Manor School, there was a girl named Mary Yanoulis, who was the last of the year tens, and nicknamed Virgin Mary by her giggling classmates. She was fourteen, taller than the rest of her class. She carried herself in a kind of round-shouldered forward lean, as if she'd been shoved out of the house that morning and hadn't quite caught her balance yet. She was an ugly duckling who was destined to grow into an even uglier duck, and she was all too painfully aware of how people saw her, all too conscious of the disdain and amusement she inspired. When the other girls, two of them in particular, interchangeably blonde, pretty in an obvious way, called Mary names, she bristled in her chair as if an electric current had shot through the seat. She tucked a few thick strands of black hair behind her ear in a futile attempt to make herself look presentable, and then let her hands fall to the folds of her grey skirt like a couple of buckshot doves. If you'd just like to give us a smile for the camera, Mary, she looked up and frowned at me. There was a mark on her cheek, close to the edge of her right eye. At first I thought it was a birthmark, but then birthmarks don't look as raw and painful as that, and they rarely push an eye half closed. Okay, then, how about a smile for me? The frown deepened. I kept smiling. I wasn't going to let this one win. Trust me, I said. I'm not going to make you look bad. She blinked, obviously wondering if I was taking the piss. I wasn't. A slow smile spread across her mouth. The clouds lifted, and just as she relaxed, I clicked the mouse. There. 
The bruise didn't show, hiding in the shadow of her hair. Her smile seemed brighter, more honest on the screen than it ever had in real life. It was almost a perfect photo, even if I did say so myself, and it would give her a nice reminder of how she wasn't a freak at all, no matter what she heard. The same couldn't be said for the two girls who giggled at Mary as she made her way back to her seat. I'd already made sure to snap those two with all their chins and bug eyes. Their cards would be their pictures in the attic. As I was leaving the school, I saw her again, her head down and her book bag protecting her front. As she passed, I said, It's Mary, isn't it? She stopped, regarded me through a curtain of hair, and then looked at her feet. Yeah. A crowd of kids passed, but I didn't really notice them. Couldn't say if they noticed me. That isn't a birthmark on your cheek, is it? She didn't say anything. It's okay. I dug out my card, held it out to her. Take it. Why? In case you need someone to talk to. She shook her head. Hey, just in case. I don't need counselling. I'm not a counsellor, Mary. But I've been there, I think. So, like I said, if you feel like talking to someone... I saw an eye through the hair. She swallowed, then took the card with long, pale fingers. I smiled at her, thought I saw the ghost of a smile back. It's my mobile, so just whenever you want, give me a ring. It's always on, okay? Okay. Okay, then. Take care. When I drove away, she still had the card in her hand. It took a couple of weeks, but she called one night at seven o'clock, just after dinner. It was her mother's boyfriend who pushed her to it. She was phoning from the bedroom, whispering into her mobile, her voice hoarse from crying and her speech punctuated with the kind of small shuddering breaks that happen when someone's cried too hard and too long. It took me a while to get her talking beyond monosyllables, but once the cracks appeared in that wall she built around herself, it wasn't long before the whole thing came tumbling down. The boyfriend was called Andy. He was a barrel of shit with anger management problems and an old-fashioned idea of gender relations. He moved in about two years prior, after a man brought him home from the pub one night and fucked noisily on the green leather sofa in the front room. Andy had had a rough time of it, according to Mary's ma'am. He'd done bird, a two-stretch, come out to find his missus shacked up with some other bloke, and so that was him chucked out of his own flat and at the end of his rope. He needed a table to put his feet under while he worked out what he was going to do. So Mary's ma'am told her to make Andy feel at home, which Andy did within the month. He liked a clean house, regular home-cooked meals, and a feel of young skin under his fingers. When Mary opened her mouth to scream, he slapped it shut and told her in no uncertain terms that if she so much as whispered to her ma'am or anyone else, Andy would beat her so fucking bad they'd have to wire her jaw shut. And what about her ma'am? Well, she was like anyone else who'd lost the last shred of their self-esteem, put on drinking weight, and after a long period of hating men started to miss them desperately. And when she found someone drunk enough to fuck her and desperate enough to stay the night, she held on to him with both fists. In that light, Mary was nothing but another pain-in-the-ass teenager who missed a false memory of her errant dad. She just needed to grow up a bit, didn't she? Mam had needs too. One of those needs was Andy. And it didn't matter if one of Andy's needs was Mary, because Mary couldn't trust her mam enough to say anything. And so, she wished she was invisible. Beaten and raped at home, 
bullied at school. There was nowhere for her to go. And when she told me that, sat across from me in a cafe in another city two stops up the east coastline, she couldn't stop herself from breaking down completely. People must have stared at us, but I didn't care. Instead, I held both her hands in mine, and I told her my own story. I told her about how my parents were drunks like her ma'am, and how my sister went to live with my mother while I got stuck with my dad and his rages. I told her about how my sister went missing. There was a pain in my throat when I told her how they found her, three weeks later, beaten and naked at the bottom of a quarry. I told her about how I never got over that. I mean, a person doesn't, does he? He shouldn't. And by that time, she'd stopped crying, and our hands had switched position. Listen, I said, you can stay with me if you want. She brightened for an instant before the inevitable clouds appeared. They'd know. No, they wouldn't. I need to go to school. No, you don't. You don't have to do anything you don't want to. When she looked at me again and realised I was deadly serious, her black eyes filled with tears, and I knew she loved me more than anyone else in the world. It was our big fuck you. When the papers reported Mary Yanoulis missing a week after she moved in, she smiled wider than I'd ever seen anyone smile before. When she saw her mam and Andy on the news, talking about her in bored tones, feigning concern, she sneered. Andy was stoic, frowning, and saying very little. Mary's mam had the pink eyes of someone who'd spent more time rubbing them than crying. When her mam stumbled over a prepared speech and said, Shit! Mary rose from my lap and squealed with laughter. She stayed with me for five months, all told. And that whole time she didn't go to school and she didn't leave the house. She didn't need to and she didn't appear to want to. I bought her everything she asked for without question. We trusted each other. She did the cooking and the cleaning, but she did it happily and I always remembered to thank her. When she wasn't playing the housewife, she was self-educating from my bookshelves. And I dare say she learned more in five months with me than she did in five years of school, mostly because she wasn't under constant threat of ridicule or physical attack. And so she changed. She became vibrant and assured. I'm not ashamed to say that I was in love, and so was she. And when I wasn't at work, it was always just us, together against the world. And as we continued to live together, we watched the news on a nightly basis, charting the slow, irrevocable decay of her old life, just as the new one blossomed. The police, having exhausted what few leads they had, gave up the search. Mary's mam and Andy didn't show up on the television again. Mary was free of her abuse once and for all. She was happy. At least, I thought that was the case. After a while, I noticed the change. I saw the books left half-read on the floor. I noticed that she spent most of her time asleep. Whenever I talked to her, she was sullen, negative and withdrawn. It didn't take a genius to work out what was happening, but I asked her anyway. What's the matter? Nothing. Tell me. She opened her mouth, rolled her tongue. I don't know. You bored? She shrugged. I leaned against the doorway. She was lying on the couch, staring at the television. Some god-awful, brightly-coloured morning show. The adult in me wanted to turn it off, but I knew that would only make matters worse. So, what is it? She huffed, then shook her head. You'll get angry. No, I won't. She glanced at me. Yes, you will. I really won't. Listen, I think I know what it is, anyway. The glance turned into a stare. What? You want to go home? She opened her mouth and then closed it again. You think they've forgotten about you? 
You think they've moved on with their lives, and you want to go around there and rub their noses in it. Is that bad? No, no, I understand it completely. But then what happens, Mary? When you've done that and you've made them feel terrible and guilty, if they even do feel guilty, and then your life goes on, are you just going to go back to your old life? She blinked. The smile had gone. I don't know. You don't miss them, do you? No. And you didn't have any friends, none that I saw. Her forehead crinkled. It's true, isn't it? Can I not even leave the house? We've been through this. At all? If someone sees you, Mary, that's it. We're both in trouble. But it's okay now. They've not said anything. Nobody knows who I am. I can dye my hair. I can't take that risk. There must be something we can do. Maybe. I checked my watch then. Look, I can't talk about this now. I'm going to be late for work. We'll discuss it tonight, all right? You said maybe. I gave her my best smile. I know I did. We'll see. She brightened immediately and followed me to the door. She kissed me on the cheek before I left. I wasn't late for work. I hadn't been late for work since I started at the large multinational corporation. If anything, I had time to spare, and I used it up sitting in my car and thinking the whole situation through. Mary didn't want to leave the house. She wanted to leave me. In the end, they always tried to leave. My sister did. She loved me for a while before she grew to hate me and went off to live with my mother, abandoning me to a childhood of barely healed bruises. We loved each other, and then we hated each other, and then she went missing. Nothing lasts forever, and everything decays in the same way. So I allowed her to leave me. She even got packed, and a week later they found her in the weeds by the railway line at Easington. It took one more week to identify her, and yet another to forget the whole thing. The ugly ones never stayed in the public's memory for very long. It was a tragedy, right enough. I didn't know what I'd done wrong, so I wasn't sure how I was supposed to learn from my mistakes. In the end, I just blamed myself for falling in love with the wrong girl. It happened to everyone. In the end, you just had to pick up and move on. I threw myself into my work to forget the heartache, which the large multinational corporation loved. There were even offers of promotion, which I politely declined. They still gave me a raise. And then, here I was, a year on from meeting Mary, letting the memory of her wander through my mind as I photographed the year nines, thinking maybe it was the age that was the problem, that perhaps the younger girl would be more malleable. As I worked, I made sure to smile and joke with Miss Morgan every now and then, just to be on the safe side and to distract me from the task at hand. That's two down, only another three to go, God help us. Hang in there, champ. I did. I tried not to think about Mary, but it was difficult, until Becky Fisher sat in front of me. She was fat and dimpled, her hair dirty and blonde. Her clothes looked aggrieved to be so close to her body, and her eyes were dark little dots whirring around in their sockets. Her details told me she was new this year. A couple of clicks of the mouse and I saw just the one name on the account. Single parent family. Mother, by the name, probably just as fat as her daughter. Both of them new in town, no real friends, nobody to confide in. When I looked at Becky, she was squirming and comfortable. I could feel the disgust from her classmates like a warm gust of fetid air. I smiled at her, and thoughts of Mary Yanoulis went from my mind. If you'd just like to smile for the camera there, Becky. She stared at me. She looked frightened.
I want to say something smart-ass here, but I really must restrain myself. Anyway, we've had two tales tonight about the shaping of young minds and young futures, yes? Yes. This last one really gets to me. Thanks for that, Ray. Ray, I guess, is principally known as a crime author, and this story, I guess, could go that way or this way, our way. I think it's horror most definite. What do you think? Raymond E. Banks has worked as a wedding singer, double-glazing salesman, dole monkey, and at various degrees of disgruntled temp work. Oh, my, I could tell tales. And he has been a croupier. There is an excellent story about that one. His first novel, The Big Blind, from Point Blank Press in 2004, draws on his croupier experience. Originally intended as a literary novel, he says, its impact on the crime fiction world has been significant. His second novel, Saturday's Child, from Polygon in 2006, introduced wayward private investigator Cal Innes, who had previously made his debut in one of Ray's short stories. The Innes series continued with Donkey Punch from Polygon in 2007, No More Heroes, Polygon 2008, and it concluded with Beast of Burden from Polygon in 2009. Ray writes novels and short stories like this one, and keeps a fairly clean online abode at www.thesaturdayboy.com. We'll put that on the Tales to Terrify website. And once again, thank you, Richie Smith, for coming by to read to us. Coming by all the way from Trafford, UK. Richie was born in 1980, and as he has said and continues to contend, it's been pretty much all downhill from there. His roommates in his old Trafford digs are a death metal musician and a long-lived salamander. You can go and say hello to him on Twitter, if you want, because he is a thoroughly modern sort of chap in that way. He is at Narenschiff, N-A-R-R-E-N-S-C-H-I-F-F. He's currently putting his master's degree to good use, he says, as a roadie for a heavy metal band, in Slovenia. Thanks again, Richie. Seriously, good work. Well, that will be that. A matched pair of tales tonight, one set in a world which to us is strange, an odd blend of fantasy and terror, the other, horror that runs to the quick. Well, I will have you be up and doing now, children. Wrap up, be warm. Ease yourself through the night to home. In the past, I have urged you to avoid the mirrors and the reflective surfaces that line your way. Tonight, tonight, I think you'd better take peeks. Watch yourself as you go by. You are you. That's all. And you know what and who that is, yes? Of course you do. You've known that face, that body, all your life. There's nothing impressed upon it other than what you have put there. Yes? Take that home and to your bed and take that face into the best of pleasant dreams.
This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website. W- Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. www.districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening. <laughs>